Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me are my co-hosts, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hello, Kate. And Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor. Hi, Kate. Hey, Eric. And today we're speaking with Dancy Senna, whose new novel is called New People. I read this novel in one sitting on an airplane with a man, I think, reading over my shoulder the entire time. <laughs> but it was so good yeah. and such a fast, fast it is read. Really, yeah. Actually, I noticed some of the blurbs mention the readability and the kind of fevered reading of this book. And I totally had that as well. Absolutely. I mean, even though I read it in two sittings. So okay, I guess well, I'm the slacker fair. for this week. You should week, be ashamed. Yeah, I found this fascinating. I really love the characters. It gave me a lot to think about this week. And I just really loved this conversation that we had with Dan. Yeah, it's great. Okay, so let's listen to that. Today we're speaking with Danzy Senna. Danzy is an author of fiction and nonfiction. Her first novel, Caucasia, was a finalist for the International Impact Dublin Literary Award and was named the Los Angeles Times Best Book of the Year and won the American Library Association's Alex Award. She has published three other books, including the novel Symptomatic, the short story collection You Are Free, and Where Did You Sleep Last Night? A Personal History. Her most recent novel, New People, will be released by Riverhead Books in August. Danzy, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. We were thinking you could start by reading from the new book. Sure. I'm going to read a scene kind of late into the novel. Maria and Khalil wander crate and barrel one afternoon in a dream state, making a list of the objects they hope will fill their cabinet someday. Fairly useless household items that, according to the sales lady at Crate and Barrel, are necessities of a grown-up middle-class couple. Objects that nobody, as far as Maria can tell, uses on a daily basis, but they might someday whimsically desire, and should therefore have stored away in their cabinets just in case. A Le Creuset pie pan fluted around the edges because someday, once or twice in the next decade, she will want to bake a pie. A six-speed blender that can crush ice and probably fingers, too, in its silver blades— a crockpot with a ceramic insert that promises to make wholesome dinners while the multitasking career mother is at work. A mortar and pestle made from volcanic rock used to crush spices for the slow cooker meals she will someday prepare and leave to cook by themselves. A juicer for the fresh orange juice she will once or twice think to serve her tribe of racially nebulous children in the morning before school a set of cocktail tumblers, and a copper ice bucket for the chic parties they will do every weekend or more likely every few years. An ice cream machine so they can, on a whim, make exotically flavored ice cream one Friday night after baking their own pizza using the portable Pizzeria Pronto oven. And a non-stick muffin tin, too, because although she will not be the kind of dreary mother to slave over a hot stove every day, she will be the kind of woman who might decide to bake muffins once in a while just for fun. So she will have a muffin tin available when and if this should ever happen. They celebrate the completion of their registry checklist by going out to lunch. Over matching Waldorf salads, Khalil says he has a surprise. 
He says, smiling, that he's contacted a friend at the New York Times who feels confident he can finagle a featured wedding announcement about them. Khalil says this means they will be the subject of a longer article rather than just the blurbs with the headshots they give to everyone else. We're going to be a fucking feature, he says. Maria asks him why. He looks disappointed in her reaction. I mean, she says, are we interesting enough for a feature? We met in college just like 98% of the other couples in that section. What's so great about us? Khalil leans across the table and whispers to her, we're mulatto. Everybody loves mulattoes. Nobody will grow bored of us, ever. He begins to laugh. She laughs too because it's funny. Every sentence is funnier with the word mulatto in it. After lunch, they look into store windows holding hands. She glimpses an attractive, smiling couple up ahead. It's them, of course, a reflection in the glass. Maria and Khalil. They look good together. They really do. And she is happy with him. She thinks he's probably right about the article. They will be promoted to a feature story. They are already the subject of a documentary, after all. So what if the sex is not great? Nobody has to see their wooden lovemaking. That doesn't have to be in the feature article about them. They only have to know this vision of them walking down a street laughing together. From far away, they look like a couple that would have great sex. It's not that important, sex. The best sex she ever had was with the white guy she despised and fantasized about bludgeoning to death with an African statuette. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. This is from later in the book, but it's giving us a good sense of the story here, basically, of someone who seems to have everything going for her in a lot of ways and is not quite feeling like that. How would you describe the story of this book and how did it start coming together for you? Well, I always begin my fiction with an interest in a kind of cultural geography. And in this case, I was really interested in Brooklyn of the 90s and this moment that I lived there and kind of came into adulthood in Fort Greene, actually, when Brooklyn was not so racially gentrified. But this other kind of gentrification was taking place where a lot of young, kind of artistically minded college graduates who were Black were all moving into the neighborhood. And I lived on a street where Spike Lee's production studio was at the end of one block. And then this cafe that Tracy Chapman and Alice Walker had opened was on the other end of the block. And I called it the dreadlocked elite, my neighborhood. (laughs) And, um, And it was kind of, it made me think about the Harlem Renaissance and this moment that was really kind of vibrant and fertile moment when all of these people kind of arrived in this neighborhood and we all had very similar interests and were kind of vibing off of each other. Vibe magazine was big and the hip-hop of that era. And I was just really interested in placing this character in this setting and this couple in particular who've graduated from Stanford and the guy, Khalil, has been wanting to join the Brooklyn Renaissance, as he calls it, and they move there together. And so that's the geography I was interested in. And then, you know, this woman who's had a very kind of difficult childhood and, you know, her mother has died, her adoptive mother has died, and she's had a lot of loss and has found this perfect guy. And she's biracial, he's biracial. They're kind of the perfect king and queen of the racially nebulous prom, as I put it. And she's writing her dissertation. She's almost done with that. And everything's kind of 
ahead of her in this very positive way. And then she sees this man, this poet, and begins to kind of unravel everything. And the story is about this obsession she has with this guy who is only referred to as a poet and her kind of obsessive desire for him that will undermine all these things in her life. So I definitely want to get to her stalker moment with the poet, which is really great. But I also wanted to back up to what you said. I'm glad that you mentioned the thing about the Harlem Renaissance, because that had obviously been occurring to me. There's a number of references that readers will see to the Cotton Club, to the trope of the tragic mulatta, she even says at some point, and also to the Niggerati, which was the kind of countercultural, like rebels of the Harlem Renaissance. In some ways, if you're making that connection, like, how do you see that time kind of being reflected again in 90s era Brooklyn? Mm. But also, I mean, as much as the book is definitely set in the 90s, it also feels very contemporary, yeah. right, to like right now. I mean, the conversations that they're having, even about this New York Times, the wedding vows section could be something that people are having right now in 2017. Yeah. Right? And I think my editor, when she started reading the novel, got confused at a certain point because she thought it was now the first read-through. And she then was like, wait, this is the 90s. And yeah, I can see like, where that confusion you know, comes from. And I think that a lot of the conversations we're having now sort of started in that moment. And in my world, anyway, even at Stanford in the early 90s, there was all the identity politics. And we didn't have that word intersectionality, but that's mm, what we were talking about. Yeah, and yeah. we kind of started, I mean, that generation, I think, kind of started a lot of what we're discussing in the culture right now. And it felt, I've been teaching at college campuses for a long time, and it's often felt a little strange to me, like, my students are saying stuff and they think it's the first time it's been said. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wait, 20 years ago, we said, and so why hasn't it progressed past this conversation? Yeah. And that's a little bit disconcerting almost. And this book is called New People. And the couple is the subject of a documentary that someone's making about biracial people, the children of the sort of civil rights mm -hmm. generation, the children of loving versus right. state of Virginia, of which I am very much that generation of biracial person, and a lot of my friends are. But the idea that we are new was also very popular at that time, and there was like a cover of Time magazine where this idea that mixed-race people were going to somehow solve the racial divide just by racially mixing. And, and it's never happened before. Ever happened. Ever. And there's never <laughs> been light-skinned Black people. Like, it's, it's the illusion of that mixture hasn't been the beginning of this country began in that, and that we are, you know, an old story. So I was just interested in those kinds of weird echoes and the way that time has not necessarily progressed and the conversation hasn't progressed. And but really, I wasn't thinking so consciously about that when I was writing it. I was, all of my obsessions and my memories of that time were kind of fueling me. But because I've studied the Harlem Renaissance and love that era, I think it couldn't help but sneak in and feel those reverberations. Do you have a sense about why you think that those conversations haven't progressed? Well, it, in colleges... Everyone's always 18, <laughs> right. so you get right. older, but they stay between those ages. So I'm sure that I was that irritating student in a way to my professors saying, but have you ever thought about, you know, <laughs> the way that right. sexism and racism can, you know, and I was thinking I was the first one to stumble on these things. But I think that, you know, part of it is that some of the 
country and some people have been having this conversation for a long time, but some people have not had this conversation at all. That's sort of the definition of privilege is never to have to think about it and never to even have it cross your mind that you have a body that is read certain ways. So when you get to college, that's the first time people are having these moments of revelation. And and for me, actually, when I went to college, it was also the first time a lot of the Black students were for the first time in a community of other Black people, because mm-hmm. these were the kids plucked out of the mm-hmm. elite schools where they were the token. And so we were finally able to have that conversation together. Can you talk a little bit about the, in a way, it also resounds with themes from after the Harlem Renaissance of this, like, great optimism for multiculturalism, or cosmopolitanism was another word that was used to describe that phenomenon. Maria seems really dissatisfied with that. On the one hand, explicitly, (laughs) yes, explicitly on a sexual level, she, you know, the other biracial person who is also her fiancé doesn't get married in the book. And that she doesn't find sex with him satisfying, but she does find sex satisfying with the poet who is represented as like very black. And then her white boyfriend, Greg, who is also represented as very white. I think he's from Darien, Connecticut. (laughs) Even better. (laughs) Yeah. More white than white. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's these abstract ideas that we think we're supposed to desire someone because of a kind of ideological connection. And I feel that you know, in a way, she and Khalil have almost a sibling relationship. There, right. There's a more, there is a connection there, but it's it's maybe not the erotic tension that she gets from these other encounters and both with the poet who is sort of unknown to her, this guy. I mean, he remains kind of at a distance. The first time she sees him in the novel anyway, he's on a stage. And then the white guy, I think she's having a fight with him Greg and her college about racism. And as she says, she's being professionally black and explaining (laughs) to him why something is racist. And he's saying something really kind of clueless back to her. And I think she says, like, she railed against him and shouted at him and immediately wanted to have sex with him after that. You know, like, there's a a connection between the hostility and sex for her. So all of the kind of darkness within her that doesn't get met by these multicultural tropes and ideals. There's like a lot in her that's kind of edgy and has this kind of darkness. And I think that she's looking for a way to express that maybe. You know, I wouldn't want to analyze my own character, but that's that's definitely something I think that's there. She seems existentially unhappy. (laughs) I mean, but in a way that's liberating because I think it allows her to have her behavior, you know, that it opens many doors for her <laughs> in terms of the plot and action is that there's something so unsettled, so deeply despairing in her. It's almost mm. like there's no, the consequences don't matter as much, perhaps. I mean, in a way that's, it's actually like electric to read. Mm. But and I wonder what it was like to write a character like that, who you didn't have to think about, you know, giving a happy ending to necessarily or turning her over or having her, you know, prove that she's anything but what she is in the beginning of the book. Yeah, this was probably the most liberated I've ever felt writing a novel. In a way, I think when you're a writer of color and hold, you know, the history of all this literature and these stereotypes behind you, there's that burden of representation. And my first novel was kind of, Caucasia was kind of hailed as this sort of, I had to go on like a 
three-year book tour talking to people about it and wear those hats that we always have to wear as writers of color. Even if you're writing fiction, you're a sociologist, you're an anthropologist, you're writing autobiography even when you aren't. And I found that experience actually very oppressive of being told that my character was the antidote to all the tragic mulattoes who had come in literature before her. Because Nobody wants to read a happy character. Nobody wants to read a character without problems. And if I've solved that problem, I have nothing more to say or no more (laughs) stories to tell. And I actually, you know, found Maria, I was really excited to write a female character and a biracial woman, black, I think of her as black and biracial character who is troubled and troubling and does the wrong thing. And I never want, you know, I don't feel any obligation to write sympathetic characters, write characters I want to hang out with. The only requirement is that she be interesting for me. And as a reader, that's how I feel. So for me, I loved her because she caused problems. And that's what I want from my fictional characters. And I also loved her because she was funny to me. And I was laughing. And, you know, I found her cynicism amusing. So for me, it was a liberating experience to write her. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. So we're lucky to have Harmony Holiday back in the studio, and she's here to give us a book recommendation. What are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend something that probably doesn't get a lot of attention, but Tony K. Bambara's Assault Eaters. I feel like it's really relevant to now. It is about a woman who's kind of involved in the movement. You don't know when exactly. And she sort of goes crazy. She checks herself into some kind of institution and it's weaving between her organizing protests and things like that and having like psychological mental breakdowns and trying to leave her husband. And the back of the book says something really interesting about the narcissism of despair and the tall order of wellness, you know, which I think about a lot, like how it's easy to just have a nervous breakdown. Um, (laughs) But if you're taking care of yourself and you're doing well, especially in a time like now, and it's set in a time kind of like now where there's a lot of political turmoil, there's a responsibility if you're able-bodied and not on the street to actually be participating in some kind of action. And so it looks into that in a really beautiful way. And when was this book written? I think it might have been like in the 80s. I don't okay. I don't know. And I a, just picked it up at a used bookstore oh, in and Chicago. And it's a novel? It's a novel, yeah. It's really good. It's really unique. I don't think her writing is read a lot. And do you know, was she a political activist herself? She wrote, you know, in that mode. I'm sure she was in some way. Right. And what's the title of the book again? The Salt Eaters. The Salt Eaters by Tony Cade Bombara. Tony Cade Bombara. And was this the first Bombara you'd read or? It was. She's one of those people who like we all should read, but we don't get to her, you know. So Tony Cade Bombara. Yeah. Okay, well, great. Thank you so much. That sounds relevant. Cool. That was Harmony Holiday, and her new book is Hollywood Forever. Out now from Fence. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with Gansey Senna. It's 
interesting also because some of the things that she does are genuinely sort of frightening. Yeah. And dangerous things that I think stem from her, from this unsettlement in her where she just, and I won't give this, give anything away, but um, where she slips into other characters and other personalities and other identities seamlessly, right? Without, and without the reader ever quite knowing what has just happened <laughs> um, and whether this is an imaginative part of her that is that we're seeing or if she has genuinely taken on this other person's identity and job mm. um so it also she also really seems a part of that and settlement is the openness i think uh, the open doors that she creates just by being willing to be led in, in many ways yeah. by other people yeah yeah and i think she's racially ambiguous and so in a way, you know, one of the metaphors I've used is that when you are mixed and you don't sort of appear to be what you think of yourself as, and there's any uncertainty about you in terms of where you fit into these binaries, you become a Rorschach test for the mm -hmm. people around mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And really what they see on her has mostly to do with them. And then, you know, what's intriguing to me as a writer is when somebody makes a mistake about you, what if you just go with it? Go mm -hmm. with the mistake, you know? And I'm interested in those fictional possibilities. So for me, you know, it's something I've explored a lot in different ways, but this sort of had this kind of interesting existential potential about the erasure of any kind of real real identity and, and her being kind of whatever is projected upon her. Oh, I wondered also the role of cults in the book, I thought yeah. seemed to kind of parallel that. So she's writing her dissertation on Jonestown, yeah. um, which is a large, you know, which is given some time uh, talking about Jonestown in the book, which is fascinating. Then also she gets pulled into in one scene, you almost see her that she could become a Scientologist. She sees an old classmate in the subway and and takes a stress test and I thought oh, oh she's we, we lost her but um but so yeah so that I was wondering how that the you know cults played into a theme of the kind of subsuming of identity in cults played yeah. played against or into other things you were writing about yeah and Jonestown I mean I feel like I have three geographies in this book one is Brooklyn of the 90s one is Stanford of the early 90s and that sort of culture wars and identity politics of that time. And the third is Jonestown. And Jonestown, I think, has been largely forgotten. And my students don't even know that it happened. You know, this 1978, a white man led a thousand Americans, a preacher and left-wing um, activist, led a thousand people to Guyana and um, they had a sort of utopian multicultural society there and 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 even that two-thirds of them were black is is largely unknown right. mm -hmm. um, and it ended about as bad as any multicultural utopia could end <laughs> and that's where we get the phrase drink the Kool-Aid and it's the largest mass suicide in America of Americans in the history of this country the most Americans dead until September 11th right I also read where Jonestown well. yeah. yes mm -hmm. and I'm just really fascinated with the erasure of independent thought and, and the sense of identity and the individual, when the individual gets subsumed by a group identity. And, and it happens in this novel in many different places. But that's sort of the most extreme version of that, where she's doing her dissertation on thing that had all this 
amazing potential and, and the language of it. I mean, I would have gone to Jonestown. I have this brochure from Jonestown in my that I have at home, and it's like, it looks amazing. I mean, those are my people. Um, it's a bunch <laughs> right. of mixed kids and milk interracial couples and real utopian 70s activists who are living in this community and it's a socialist utopia and um so you know i'm just being interested in that moment of of people becoming unhinged from their thinking and from making choices and it's a it's a incredible story jonestown and i i it's almost too disturbing to take on directly i found it was easier for me to write about from a slight angle mm-hmm. I was wondering if there was something about that experience that was tempting for you, or uh, as you had said, that um, that Maria sort of, she goes with the mistakes that people make about her and the assumptions that she uh, that people make about her, which are constant. Is there, I don't know if this is too personal, but is there a time at which you had gone with a mistake that somebody had made about you or that, that you found that there was something, in fact, quite tempting about going into a sort of experience that was separate from your own your own actual identity and your own actual thoughts and what you actually were. Right. Well, my whole life I've had the experience of being mistaken for many different things. And I always say in New York, I'm whatever the cab driver is. <laughs> They're like, you are the face of Turkey. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go with that. And, and sometimes you correct people and sometimes you just decide that's not the space that you want to discuss your personal right. life with. So you just don't correct the mistake in these little moments that have no consequence. But I, I think with fiction, you know, I'm always looking for the story that didn't happen within the story that did. And so mm-hmm. there's always a flicker of autobiography that I kind of take to a place that's maybe more dangerous or more consequential. But for me, you know, my whole life has been about sort of constant interactions where I have to come out. Like in the, the you know, my gay friends, you have to come out because you 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 sort of disappear into this mm-hmm. homogenous room and then you have to kind of disrupt that comfort zone of people when they are assuming something about you that's not true. And that's happened to me more times than I can ever count. That's just a constant. So I think my interest in these moments of confusion stems from that place for sure. Right. I also liked how... um on the one hand, Maria is a screen upon which others project their fantasy of who she is, what she is, what she means. But other people also become similar kind of screens for Maria to project onto. And I think what I love so much about there are so many wonderful descriptions of being desperately, passionately and maniacally in love with someone else <laughs> or love would maybe be too strong. It's more like just you want to be with that person, like you're really mm-hmm. fascinated with this person. And so there's ways in which his hat, things about his dress, things about the smell of his clothes, right? They summon all these worlds that may or may not be real. Right. You know, so like I also really loved that. And is that is in a sense like Maria also playing with like a series of unstable signifiers that just kind of populate and circulate in her world? Yeah. Well, I mean, with the poet, I think I was very reserved about details about him even. I wanted to kind of keep him a bit of that screen. And the way that infatuation works is that you you really bring all of this meaning to this person. Yeah. And and, you know, with Jim Jones, they they came and brought all of this hope to this person who 
he would reveal all these cracks in himself and people would just choose not to see it. And they would, that he was a projection of, of a lot of fantasies and hopes that, you know, died that day. So there was all these connections between the, the different levels of the story, but mm. I definitely felt like she also um, is, is projecting. And, you know, one of the things about my first novel and the kind of journey to this novel is the the first novel is about a child and a child is led places and placed in situations, but Maria is complicit in the dirtiness of the world around her. She's mm, not clean okay. from the first page. And I really wanted a character who was who was not a victim purely, is not a purely, you know, an oppressor, but is this kind of mixture of all of these different mm-hmm. things, but is very much complicit yeah. in the culture that she's critiquing. That might also be the strain in this novel that feels so contemporary is this mm-hmm. this kind of almost universal complete like that you there is no pure victim there's no pure like villain right that right. it's like in fact we're all inhabiting these kind of various you know like many of us have iPhones for example <laughs> so right. that it's like this inextricability and I'm wondering is that what's getting in the way of figuring out for Maria like what she wants in in one moment, there's she says something like, "I wish I weren't so smart," or "I I wish I wasn't thinking about <laughs> right. this so much." Right. And there seems to be there like a yoking of like consciousness with also like deep unhappiness or an uns- or a kind of stuckness that you don't really know what to do with. Yeah, I think that moment is where Greg of Darien, Connecticut, is saying to her. Um, she's remembering him saying to her, "What if the world just..." You know, what if people just mixed and the world was no longer black and white? We were all a mixture. Wouldn't that solve the problem? And that was one of those moments when she wanted to hit him over the head. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> rightly so. Statue yeah. And, and, and her thinking like, well, what if I just go with that idea? And like, I, I'm not so sort of hypercritical and kind of throwing shade at everything mm. that comes in my path. Uh, yeah. You actually heard the care. I think she reminds me of a different Maria um, from Play As It Lays uh, oh, from wow. Joan Didion's book. That's what I kept on thinking of because that deep kind of, and I think also a thing, you know, that was a novel about Hollywood, but she's part of Hollywood, but you feel this, there's just no resolution. There's mm-hmm. no pop when someone has such a deep dissatisfaction and rightly so. And you can point to a lot of, I mean, I think there's circumstantial reasons in the book you know, that that could be the reason that she's unhappy, but there's also this larger race. It's just, there. It, it's something that there's no easy answer and basically, right, it will be this eternal problem in some ways that she, yeah. that her, you know, she she can't go to either pole. I think that, that irresolution represents in her and um and that's why, and that's why she's actually a sympathetic character in some ways, even if she's, does a lot of damage, but um, but because you can feel that that it's not, it doesn't feel like a pose of just unhappiness, but. right? Yeah, and I love that played as it lays. I read so many years ago, but I love I love that novel and the tone of it and the sort of sullied feeling of that main character as well. well I, I think, hear what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, the about woman that. who just yeah. seems there's something you think, what does she want? Maybe she doesn't know, but she obviously right. isn't getting something and it doesn't seem to present itself in the book. And yeah. Um yeah. And I think a lot of I mean I think a lot of people relate to that kind of dread, um, especially at that age too, of, you know, she's about to she's about to get everything she could want. I mean yeah. her dissertation, she's getting married, but it's just not 
Yeah, and it's kind of like a, a, a sort of a marriage plot, but in a very strange way, you know, she's she's sort of um, also has this kind of, you know, the fantasy of marriage as the happily ever after is, mm-hmm. is kind of undermined in here. And that feeling of, you know, the, the matchy match, we're going to look like the characters on the wedding cake and we're going to be this unified, this idea of unity and that there isn't actually always a separation between two people. That's, you know, the, the illusion of unity and of mirroring, mm-hmm. um, the cracked mirror, I think, in this and, case. And the prefab narrative, right? Yeah. That's another big thing that she and the novel is resisting, right? Yes. Is this like, oh, and this is, I mean, in many ways, that's what the New York Times article is about, right? <laughs> that it's like, oh, yeah, you're perfect. That's the story we want. That's the that's the image we want. And she's like, no, but I don't want that, right? Yeah. No, and I think I've, I, I mean, in everything I've written, since I started writing, you know, I'm trying to write against these kinds of um, mythologies. I, I find like part of my goal in writing is to disrupt mythologies, whatever they may be that I'm exploring. And, um, you know, I really, I like, you write what you want to read and I like work that makes me uncomfortable and that doesn't resolve things and that kind of creates more questions and more uncertainty for me is is good. Right. So for me, Maria was a perfect kind of vehicle to do that through. And so are you working on another book at the moment or? Yeah, I'm not talking about anything I work (laughs) on, but you know, the funny story about new people is that I, it's sort of a tragic story, actually. It's, It's funny only in retrospect is that I was writing another novel for four years that was under contract and I could not finish. And I I had two children that were young and high maintenance and there was lots of disruptions. And like a novel, I think for me anyway, requires that daily work and that momentum that builds when you're sort of going into this dream state and it doesn't get, you don't get woken too much. And I kept getting woken up Mm, and, mm -hmm. and then I had this book really overdue and I wrote this novel just really separately and sort of cheated on my other novel with this novel and then called my editor and said, I have some good news and some bad news. (laughs) The novel that I was writing that you've seen and that's never happening. And But I have another novel that's completely finished. Wow. And I'm going to send it to you right this second. I swear to God. And yeah, so... um. What I learned from that is that I work best in secrecy and in complete cloak of silence. So, <laughs> yes, see. but uh-huh. I'm very happy that my kids are a bit older and some of the possibility of sort of getting submerged is there again for me. And yeah. Well, I can really tell that this was written in a burst because yes. it's just, it really does read that way. So. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, it was a really fun book to write, and it was like a lot of wicked laughter, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, Danzy, thank you so much for coming on our show and talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. We've been speaking with Danzy Senna. Her new book is New People, and it'll be out in August. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. 
production assistance from William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 